0: Hi, this is Dr. Adrian. Welcome to Health Bite, the podcast where we explore all things health and wellness. Welcome back to Health Bite, our podcast where we talk about all things health and wellness. Today, I'm really pleased to have with us a very special practitioner, Dr. Siri Chand Khalsa. Dr. Siri, I'm gonna call you for short, has a really interesting background. She is board certified in internal medicine, but also has an area of expertise in Ayurveda. She is a Kundalini yoga instructor and also a Reiki master. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for being here with me.
1: I am so excited to be here. Thank you for the
0: invitation. It's a pleasure. Your background is so uh, apropos right now because I think more and more uh, people are interested in incorporating um, Eastern practices with Western medicine. And it's rare to find someone who is so well-trained and grounded in both. So I really can't wait to glean your expertise on how you reconcile these two areas and aspects of medicine.
1: I'm really excited to be given the opportunity because again I feel that the time that we're in right now the traditional allopathic pathway of managing stress isn't going to quite deliver us through the stressors that people are experiencing and broadening our understanding to something beyond just the physical and the algorithmic decisions that we were given through our internal medicine training and and corollary, um, I just don't think it's going to be enough to bridge us through the amount of stress and tension and perhaps even illness that people are experiencing right now.
0: Absolutely. I think um, we can probably agree that how we've been trained in internal medicine completely disregarded the, uh, the very uh, evidence-based practices, actually like mindfulness, uh, for example, or other means of stress reduction, yoga, breathing techniques, all of which do have evidence behind it. But we were really poorly trained and I, like you, had to kind of seek this education on my own. You took it a step further with your training in Ayurveda and I know that people may not exactly know what that is. So can you first just start by defining what Ayurvedic medicine is? Sure.
1: Just a slight bit of my, I like to call it my origin story. When I was in um, undergraduate at the University of Virginia, so, so it would have been 1991, a long time ago, 1990, um, I developed a, a difficult situation with my health. I had, I was pre-med, I'd come from a STEM high school that was very high pressure I really almost had like a nervous breakdown in my undergraduate years, but it didn't show up mentally, it showed up physically. And which is very interesting, because classically, we think about that degree of dysfunction being something that someone would show mentally or emotionally. But for me, I didn't, I had that steely wasp, uh, like preserve all function at all costs. And my body took the journey upon itself to show that um, difficulty. And when that happened, interestingly enough, I stopped being able to digest food. Like literally it was nothing. It, it would have been a functional bowel disease by modern, you know, by what we know, but it, I was pretty debilitated from it. And um, I went to the student health clinic. Like I thought this should be the way we go. And the student health practitioner said, let me prescribe you phenobarbital for some reason, this was, I mean, it's absurd, even in an allopathic paradigm.
0: Just for people to know is primarily prescribed for seizure disorders.
1: Right. And there was certainly no evidence of seizure. I I don't even understand it. But I think it it was sort of what I call a happy accident or a happy event. And by that, I mean, um, I really left there thinking this is, really wrong. There's no way that's the solution to to what's what's caused this amount of imbalance in my body. So I went to a local metaphysical bookstore where I knew there were these great books on health and healing. And I happened to pull out a book on Ayurveda. And this would have been a cookbook now that's many years old and kind of a classic. And it was um, self-healing with Ayurveda. And you could say, you know, even at that point, I was a bit curious because I thought, well, surely there should be some self-healing. It shouldn't just be an external force imposed on my body. There ought to be some way I can right this ship. And um, Ayurveda is basically a several thousands year old science that developed in the Indian continent as, a, as their primary healing system. And Ayurveda translates literally as the science of life. So they looked at observationally over many, many generations and through powers of deep introspection and mindfulness, quite frankly, the Vedic traditions of mindfulness were there. And great teachers, and they even say saints, brought that knowledge into over time. It would initially, it was a, um, a spoken uh, healing system. So there was no written version of it. It was passed on through generations through what are called sutras. So there's huge textbooks that are basically like poems or uh, sayings, if you will, that have a very particular rhythm that define health and vitality. And um, it looks at every aspect of our life from our social interaction to our how we sleep how we interact, how we manage stress, and looks at it at really what I like to say is the epigenetic level. They had this very early appreciation for how many different trend lines in our life impacted the expression of health or disease.
0: Yeah, and I think epigenetics is such a fascinating phenomena. And just to give people out there a little taste of what that means, epigenetics is essentially the way in which our environment interacts with our, gen- our genes in order to turn on or off the expression of certain genes. So we all know that we have genes for brown eyes or black hair that gets passed down, um, or certain temperaments, for example, that gets passed down, and even things like diabetes and obesity that gets passed down. But we now know that we can, with our environment, turn on and off those genes in a fashion that is called epigenetics. And it's super fascinating and a talk in and of itself, but continue.
1: (laughs) Yes. And so um, as I progressed through my medical education, I always wanted to circle back to do a deeper exploration and study and i i ended up completing an internal medicine residency i even got a masters degree along the way cuz i thought perhaps i wanted to do research so i had a focus in endocrinology and mm. um and i always wanted to incorporate these holistic principles because ayurveda is so encompassing you can have yoga in it mindfulness in it nutrition um exercise really any aspect of modern lifestyle medicine is held within the definitions that exist within ayurveda
0: and there's specific pillars right so can you just tell us what those pillars of ayurvedic medicine are
1: well you know it's in, it's interesting because the ayurvedic paradigm sits on a very direct and profound relationship to nature so there's five elements and those elements hold messages and paradigms so another thing that's very interesting about our allopathic training is that we've segregated ourselves from the natural world things feel very we're indoors it's outdoors kind of mindset for lack of a better way but in ayurveda it's very integrated with the external world so these five elements which are earth water fire air and ether create sort of a basis for patterns. And in the Ayurvedic mindset, those patterns evolved into more and more refined patterns, which we call the doshas, which are what some people who may be heard of Ayurveda might be familiar with. And so earth and water are kapha, water and fire are pitta, and air and ether are vata. So these three body types, if you will, extend to our physical, emotional, and mental health, and based on the amount of that element, if you will, that we have within us, gives our basis for how we move in and out of balance. So the tridoshic theory, or Tridosha, is the fundamental, if you will, paradigm from which treatment protocols and health is cultivated there's a beautiful sutra in Ayurveda that basically says the purpose of Ayurveda is to preserve the health of the healthy and to rectify and bring back to balance the health to those who've lost it. And in our allopathic training, we truly have not found a way or model, we haven't found a way to really pay for the physician to practice true preventive medicine. We we actually do I was a primary care physician. We actually do early detection. We don't actually do prevention. Yeah. There's this huge schism in that health insurance and providers haven't really sort of adopted the mindset that it's worthwhile to make it un, a disease process undetectable, even if there's a genetic propensity for it which I think is very fascinating because it's very short-sighted. How did we land here culturally in medicine? So in Ayurveda, we look at what's called Adinacharya, which is your daily routine. And it's how you structure your mornings that gives you that ability to navigate the stress that comes into this sympathetic, parasympathetic access, which I think is a big mediator in the modern world of much more than we realize that Trauma response, that fight, flight, freeze element. So, Ayurveda gives you that resilience buffer through meditation, through self care, and you manage that in direct correlation to your dosha. So, you begin to learn the manual for your unique body. So, to me, Ayurveda is the ultimate precision medicine, the ultimate end of one. And a good, well trained Ayurvedic doctor looks at many aspects of someone's quality, emotional life, their mental life, their physical endurance, their digestive capacity, their family history, which then gives them this trajectory of what your treatment process would look like. And frankly, each evaluation is radically different. There's never, as Heraclitus said, you never step in the same river twice. No two patients, though they may have the same Western diagnosis,
0: are ever approached in the same way. And so how do you as a practitioner bring these two things together? Because I think it's very important to also acknowledge that there are certain things for which cut and dry Western medicine is the solution, right? So somebody comes in with a urinary tract infection uh, or a complicated sinus infection, that person is going to require antibiotics, right? We don't just meditate it away.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) But there may be things that that individual who has recurrent urinary tract infections or upper respiratory infections can do within Ayurvedic medicine that can enhance or boost their immunity so that the propensity for them to develop these recurrent infections are not there. So how do you go about bringing that about in a very practical way?
1: And I think this is a really critical question because uh, I, additionally, I'm board certified in integrative medicine and have done a two year fellowship. And I've also done three years of full-time Ayurvedic study. So is there a practical way that someone who has not dedicated themselves to being in the 45th grade can sort of develop a relationship to this? And so um my, my general feeling on this has been because these principles are not integrated into our educational process, generally it's good to have a team that you work with. And you know that when you just have to learn to have good judgment as an allopathic physician and say, wow, we're seeing a chronic or recurrent chronic position a uh, uh, you know, health issue here. Where can we utilize someone else's knowledge base, whether it's a yoga teacher, an Ayurvedic lifestyle practitioner, a, a Qigong teacher, an acupuncturist, a nutritionist, knowing that there's no way that most of us in allopathic medicine could possibly have the, the energy to have mastered more than one specialty in
0: depth. I think also the onus is on the person, uh, us as individuals, as um, not patients, but just humans, (laughs) right? Um, To know that it's not all one or the other. I think a lot of times, even as like people, we get um, marginalized to either believing in Western or believing in holistic, where we can... Be um, we can tease them out in, in various situations and recognize that here's a place in which I really need strong Western medicine, but here is something that I'm missing that I could perhaps augment with something else. So I think just giving people this exposure hopefully will empower them to explore, right? And to utilize all that is available to them. It has become a very complex
1: question in terms of ascertaining where the best resource for finding a good alternative or ancillary provider is, whether it's a nutritionist, a functional medicine doctor, an acupuncturist, an Ayurvedic lifestyle practitioner, a meditation teacher. And that's where I really love to have the classic allopathic provider partner with the patient and follow along with them. Really find somebody you can communicate well with. And it can take time to find that person, because these modalities don't all fit into the double-blind placebo evidence-based model. And though I think the preponderance of providers are scrupulous and have good ethics, not all of them do. And occasionally people find themselves buying very expensive lab testing or supplements, getting treatments that aren't, that are really sort of borderline ethical or safe And so really finding that provider that you can partner with and dialogue with, where they have a community that they're connected to for their learning base, whether it's lifestyle, integrative or functional uh, medicine background, where you're having collaborative conversations. I think that we're at a wonderful intersection of discovery, and we can't discredit these systems anymore, but we also want to proceed with safety, and that's where these communities are so valuable you can discuss cases, you can review uh, particular providers in your region and say, this is a really great person. They're very ethical. They, they're they very appropriate in what they know their scope of practice is. And I think this is important.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly important because you're right. I think. A big reason why allopathic physicians aren't on board with these things, and I have to admit that, until several years ago, I really rolled my eyes collectively at all of these practices. And the reason is precisely because people who, uh, the noisy people, are the ones who aren't well trained, who are making claims that are unfounded, and um, at best, these these uh, claims or these practices are costly resource-wise, like financially costly. And at worst, it can cost somebody's health if somebody is utilizing the wrong person for a diagnosis. And I have seen this not only in patients, unfortunately, but in my own family where a cancer diagnosis has been met with really squirrely (laughs) uh, treatments, um, and that's really where, where it can be harmful. And so it's also important for people to recognize it's neither, it's neither here nor there in the sense that, or, or rather it's not all or nothing. It's really should be integrative where you're integrating the best of Western medicine. And there has been tremendous science and tremendous expertise behind good Western medicine but then you are incorporating these uh, softer modalities that really are also evidence-based and preventive. I think uh, an area that is still hard for me to reconcile, and I think for a lot of Western practitioners to reconcile is the supplements and herbs and things of that sort. I know that in my own education uh, or personal studies of this, I have been turned on to adaptogens and ashwagandha in particular, which I have put in, incorporated in a line of nutritional bars that I created. So I see the value there, yeah. But can you, since you've really studied uh, extensively Ayurvedic medicine, can you talk a little bit about adaptogens and maybe some other supplements that you think should be on our radar? This is a wonderful question.
1: And I'm so excited to hear that you're utilizing ashwagandha. It's a beautiful plant. One of the things that I think, so I'll start here, is that we know there's over 26,000 phytonutrients, and the FDA has given zero guidelines for what equals baseline needs in terms of phytonutrients. And the plant intelligence largely comes to us through phytonutrients. So the very particular, like the curcuminoids that are in curcumin, and the thymol that's in thyme, and Um, These are the very particular plant elements that bring intelligence into our body systems, whether it's through detoxification systems, pathways, impact to the microbiome. And what's interesting about this is that no two plants are the same, just like no two humans are the same. So this is a confounding factor for studies, is that the production, storage, extraction, and delivery of botanical medicine is very difficult to reproduce and the response is very difficult to reproduce. And so when we're looking at botanical studies that have been done to date, they're following a very, just like pharmaceuticals do. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be held to the same safety and rigorous methods of study, but when you're giving a whole plant substance, you can be talking upwards of several hundred plant plant, individual plant constituents. And so in the Ayurvedic model, which I particularly like, and the, my rationale behind that is that two weeks from now, no one's going to do a recall on ashwagandha or ginger or, or turmeric. <laughs> it's been in the vernacular of the science for hundreds to thousands of years. So the safety profile is very well understood and the applications to each individual are very well understood. What's A little challenging is that the Ayurvedic model for delivery of care doesn't translate into a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So where one botanical would be particularly efficacious in one situation for a particular sort of imbalance, it may not work unilaterally because the source of the imbalance may be different between people. That doesn't mean we can't still find clinical applications in this modern time where we can say chronic inflammation, possibly migraines, possibly um, it, as a as a role as an anti-infection for turmeric. I mean, turmeric is very well studied. Right. Ginger has been well studied as a prokinetic for nausea and pregnancy. You know, there's different places where some botanicals have really just stepped in the spotlight and just shining really beautifully, like. Yes, the studies are reproducible. So I think the challenge really is understanding the safety profile, the interactions with pharmaceuticals and the best application. And I think that we're at we're at a crossroads where I'm so excited there's interest in it because I know there's a lot of work to do to really find where we can bridge what we know from these ancient sciences and there's many there's in fact a very interesting traditional Chinese medicine formula that has, a, I believe, a, a mushroom, licorice, and a third substance that's been studied for weaning off steroids for asthma patients. I think um, at one of the East Coast schools, is it Columbia or, I'm sorry, I don't remember the nuances of that study, but there's a particular MD who's got a research protocol where they were able to wean people off using this particular um, steroid and, um, so it's been really interesting to uh, look at that. And I'm really fascinated by it myself,
0: to be honest with you. I think, I mean, it certainly is very fascinating. And I think what you were trying to explain um, early on is that, you know, when we get a plant, there are so many different vitamins, minerals, nutrients, antioxidants, phytonutrients, as you mentioned, in each plant, that it's hard to kind of identify that active ingredient. And so I, like I know you do as well, recommend people to really get it from food, right? So have a varied uh, diet that is plant forward or, you know, plant based, even if it's not exclusively plant, but to have a lot of that plant in there because of all those vitamins and minerals. And then there are extra nutrients that um, other other ethnicities, uh, right, have been using in their Cuisine like turmeric uh, is such a part of Middle Eastern cuisine, which is my background. But these these herbs and spices used in cuisine that classically Westerners we don't use it in ours. We can supplement. And to your point of evidence based medicine, the reason why this is important is that sometimes these these substances can, I mean, they are psychoactive, they are active, not psychoactive necessarily, but they are active, right? Meaning that they, just because they come from plants, uh, heroin comes from a plant, doesn't mean they doesn't do stuff to you, right? So we need to know what these plants are doing for us. Um, But there's also great data for some of these things like uh, ashwagandha, for example. I am fascinated by all of the randomized control trials, which is our gold standard for medical studies, right, in ashwagandha and how it helps enhance mood and cognition. And so to your point, I think it's important for for people to be smart about who they're getting their advice from and where they're getting their supplements from as well, uh, because as you said, this, they are not FDA approved. And so that means no one's really looking in the bottle to make sure that what it says no. you're getting, you in fact, truly getting.
1: And there's been, unfortunately, several published studies of Ayurvedic botanicals being highly contaminated with lead and mercury. And what's interesting about that is that, unfortunately, some of the manufacturing processes have contaminated product that they're drawing from or the process they're using is antiquated or they're just not ethical. There's even sometimes been found some Western pharmaceuticals in Ayurvedic blends, which is so unfortunate. It adulterates a very beautiful science. And I get so disappointed in humanity when I hear about this stuff because I think, can we do better than this? I mean, come on.
0: And just to clarify what Dr. Siri is saying is that because of where some of these supplements are made, and sometimes they're made in the same place that, that pharmaceutical drugs are made, the supplement can be contaminated with a pharmaceutical drug that you clearly don't want. Um, and, or the supplement uh, can be contaminated with things like lead and mercury. And in fact, there was a quite a big wave of, of uh, anemia in people who were supplementing with turmeric because the turmeric was contaminated with lead. The lead was causing anemia. And I remember many years ago when I read a report that said high dose turmeric causes anemia and really the link was through the lead uh, contamination. So again, uh, while I uh, really feel like I've had a pendulum shift from very Western to, I wouldn't say very Eastern but really being much more open to these practices I also wanna caution people that they have to be Mindful and scrupulous about where they get their substances and where they get their information from.
1: It really just circles back into my point of just how important it is to find a really knowledgeable healthcare practitioner that you can partner with. Because really, if you find that person who's done an integrative medicine fellowship or extensive study that really understands the supplement, nutraceutical, botanical industry they will have certain brands that are vetted. This has always been my experience with well, well-trained well integrative providers have particular brands that they know are doing safety batch checks. They're sending them off for, you know, the company they use sends the herbs off for analysis. They, you know, they have these batch testing. They, they know the founder of a small company. You know, it is very... It becomes very um in some ways I guess the word is boutique, but it's like going to a it, you don't want to do chipotle for I like Chipotle, but like you don't <laughs> want mats for tooth
0: botanicals. You want yes.
1: a sort of artisanal quality to where you're sourcing them from. And it's And so I know supportive. from
0: and I know from sourcing and from having turmeric in my bars and having ashwagandha in my bars that uh there's there is a Very strong science behind sourcing and obtaining a clean and pure product. So that's absolutely true. I wanted to um, just talk a little bit about what we started talking about, which was you started the conversation with the very real concern that we are dealing with a stressful time, right? We are, we are kind of going into, I, I don't even know what phase of the pandemic we're in, right? But heading into the winter um, and those of us who lightened up a little bit because the weather was good and we were social distancing outside are now hunkering down a little bit more. And of course, as the holidays are approaching us, Uh, It's a time that normally has a lot of excitement and stress and now even more so. There are um, a lot of beautiful aspects of Ayurvedic medicine, supplement and otherwise, that address stress and have been shown to reduce inflammatory markers, for example, that are related to stress. So given that background, what are your top picks and what would be your guidance for people heading into this holiday season in this uh, state that we're in, in order to mitigate what is, um, what is unfortunately uh, a reality, a stressful experience? Right.
1: So I'm going to, I think three or four sort of pop into my head. And so I'll kind of go through these. Um, and again, I guess this is sort of my integrative background, but if you're, if you're, and I know this would be implicit for you as well, but I will say it. If you're experiencing significant, um, stress where you're having difficulty sleeping, difficulty feeling connected, feeling yourself withdrawing, and even progressive thoughts, um, from there, it's so important to get help it's so important to get your network of support in place, whether it's friends, family, therapists, psychiatrists. So first and foremost, I want to just say, you know, that true integrative pros- approach is just sort of assessing how important you're, where you're, where you are in the continuum. And if you can't quite get to that assessment within yourself safely, so important to reach out I know that a lot of people are feeling overextended and higher stress than normal. And as a culture, as a country, we have a significant amount of depression and anxiety and it would be perfectly normal for those conditions to be a bit worse right now, considering all the other stressors. It's sort of, so, so I do want to just point that
0: out. It's so important. I really appreciate that you bring that up because I think, a lot of us, and I find myself guilty of this as well, sometimes feel like we're holding uh, pom-poms on the sidelines and cheerleading people along. And absolutely, there are so many practices like good nutrition, exercise, mindfulness that can help manage stress and anxiety and depressed mood. But at the end of the day, when the uh, symptoms become... Um, disruptive to people's lives, then that's a sign that we need to actually get uh, a higher level of help and expertise. So I really appreciate you reminding us of that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's been my, in my own life too. You know, sometimes I would go, I'm, I'm fine. It's all good here. and Really I needed more support than I was willing to acknowledge. Um, So that, so having said that, There's three areas where I would look really concretely. And we know that in, well, I should say in the Ayurvedic model, finding routine is actually one of the core foundations to helping um, quiet anxious thoughts. And so even if finding a routine, I have found this in myself. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm working from home which means I'm in and out of the kitchen five, six, seven times a day. I'm not really eating at regular meal times like I used to. Uh, sometimes bed is early, sometimes bed is late. And even this morning, I was thinking, uh, I really need to get back to a
0: routine.
1: I have really left what used to be the normal structure of my day. And in the Ayurvedic um, teachings, Rhythmicity and routine are actually the foundation for balance and resiliency. And so if we can circle back in and just pay attention to when we're going to bed, what time we're eating lunch, what time we're eating breakfast, this can be really useful. And I think in the context of that, the second thing I would look closely at is our nighttime routine. So restorative sleep, and I, I imagine you, if you haven't done a podcast, I'm sorry, I don't know your whole inventory. At some point, you'll have a sleep expert on because yes. it's just such a foundational piece. But in the Ayurvedic model, which is slightly transitioning to the integrative model, it's um, nurturing the sensory system, so the eyes. So letting the eyes have lower light, dim lights in the house, amber glasses, the blue light blocking. So that if you're if you are on the phone, which a lot of people are in that scroll hole, as we call it right now, it's like oh gosh, I'm I'm bored and I'm busy. You know, it's like oh the simultaneous tension
0: that's happening. I've never heard that scroll hole, uh, but that has been my personal uh, goal this last couple of weeks is to really limit my my not only it was news and, and now just consumption of social media. So I like that yeah. expression. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think someone someone along the way had shared that with me. And so really nurturing and being regular about that bedtime routine. And in Ayurveda, interestingly enough, the reset mechanism is best if we're if we're in bed by nine thirty. There's a circadian rhythm concept in Ayurveda that says once we're awake and active after ten PM, we get this second wind that's utilizing Pitta, which is this transformative energy, which tends to leave us feeling a bit revitalized. But in theory, that's a digestive metaphoric time for digesting the day, digesting food. So if we're awake, we're sort of diverting energy from a process the body is sort of naturally tending towards. Interesting. So sleep, so routine and looking at our sleep schedule. And the third one, and again, it is, um, it is a funny one. But uh, I find in the holiday season, and I'm going to say perfectly guilty here, is that there's just this preponderance of baked goods and um, holiday celebrations that permeate with sugar, refined sugar. And I'm not a person that says eliminate all refined sugar or white flour. Um, I'd like to have a sense of moderation and that these are things that flavors that I enjoy mentally, emotionally. Traditions in the family of holiday cookies. So Ayurveda would say to cultivate the bitter taste to balance that. Mm. So um, perhaps less sugar this year than in other years, if we can. Mm-hmm. But to add, this may seem very out of the out and left field, but to add a half cup of steamed greens to bring the bitter taste, to bring the alkaloids, to bring the phytonutrients that are in the greens. To help reset some of those internal mechanisms. So the beautiful thing about Ayurveda is that we always seek to refine balance. Nothing in and of itself is thoroughly vilified, if you will. There's always a way to nurture ourselves back to balance. And so I recognize through many years of clinical medicine, 20 years, that telling people not to eat sugar in the holiday season is absurd. So I have adopted a mindset of what can we add to that Mm -hmm. while being mindful of our consumption and understanding that sugar affects immunity, mood, sleep, energy, um, all of those things. So those would, I could go on and on, but those would be three that we could look really concretely at in this time to just give us a little more resiliency, because that's really what we're all looking for right now in this COVID time is just that. That ability to pause before we react, that ability to pause before we decide before we reach for something that may not be benefiting our health.
0: Yes, I love that. all of that is such great advice, and this conversation in total has been so uh, nourishing really um, our our guests can 't see you, but you have even a serene look about you so So I really appreciate having to been able to speak with you and to see you visually. Um, For people who want to know more, to learn more about you and what you have to offer, how can we find you?
1: I have a website, pretty easy to find me, drsirichand.com. And all my social media is linked uh, through that website. Very easy to find me on social media under that same name as well, though.
0: Yes. And I know you do wonderful videos from the kitchen. So there's a lot of great content there. I really appreciate you taking the time to being, uh, to speak with me and be on this podcast. It's been lovely to have you. And
1: I'm so excited for what you're creating, your intention and the guests. And thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you.